Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories podcast, Season 2, Episode 16. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And today we are joined by former Florida State quarterback E.J. Manuel, Camellia Bowl Executive Director Johnny Williams, and the co-founder and managing director of Eventelect, Pat Ryan. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and bettors. Our first guest is one of the most productive quarterbacks in Florida State history. He led the Seminoles to a 25-6 and record as a starting quarterback during the 2009-12 seasons, which is the fourth, fourth most wins in program history. He's the second quarterback in FBS history to win four straight bowl games. Please welcome to the show, former Florida State quarterback E.J. Manuel. E.J., welcome to the show. Nick, thanks for having me. I'm sorry for my background and where I'm at right now. I had to get my car serviced, unfortunately, but uh, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be talking with you. Well, I, I love it. I love you for uh, for finding a way to join us. Uh, that's the beauty of uh, modern technology and podcasts nowadays. You can literally do it from anywhere. Absolutely. Well, first off, how have you enjoyed the transition uh, into being a broadcaster and an analyst of college football? Nick, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and I'll make a long story short. Um, I signed with the Kansas City Chiefs in 2019. Uh, and during that same offseason, uh, I also did two auditions with ESPN and then coming to ACC Network, which, which was launching in August of 2019. Uh, so I signed with Kansas City, and then I went through OTAs April, May, and June. Uh, ESPN was asking, well, are you going to join TV or are you going to continue to play because they needed to make a decision, uh, as did I. And I pretty much told Coach Andy Reid, as I'm talking to you, uh, hey, Coach, I'm going to go do TV. And so he was like, what? Why? Like, and, uh, you know, it was a passion of mine. It was something I got my degree in when I was at Florida State. And I'd already played six years, so I felt like it was time for me to transition and move on. And it was really one of those decisions that I felt like it was time was of the essence. And I didn't want, you know, ACC Network to launch. And then three or four years down the road, I try to get in at that point. And then that spot's already taken. So uh, I've been very happy and been very pleased with my growth in it. And I'm really enjoying it. So at Florida State, uh, you won an ACC championship and the Orange Bowl your senior year. It was your last collegiate football game. What did that Orange Bowl win mean for you, as well as for your teammates, especially those seniors that didn't have the opportunity to play beyond college? And that was literally their last football game they ever played. Well, Nick, it meant everything. Uh, winning the Orange Bowl was one of those feats that as a high school kid or a middle school kid watching bowl games late in the year um, with your family. With, I remember watching with my dad, seeing these great teams playing the Orange Bowl. And now this was my moment. You know, this is my moment to etch my name in Florida State history as an Orange Bowl champion. Uh, we had already won an ACC championship. And I think the big key was this was the new trajectory for Florida State. You know, when I became a quarterback there, I wanted to leave FSU in a better spot than it was once I became the starter. And so that was huge for me uh, to just help our team get to that point nationally, get that respect. Uh, and obviously the next year they went on to win a national championship and you know, along with myself, I think I got drafted and maybe 12 other guys got drafted my year. And then the following was Jameis and all those other great players that we had. And I felt like winning that Orange Bowl was really the beginning of Florida State getting back. And so I'm very proud of that. Well, we, we talked about the end of your career, Florida State. Let's let's jump back to the beginning of it. I think one of the more underrated moments in your career came in your freshman season in 2009. You, when you replaced an injured Christian Ponder, led the team to a couple wins you know, down the stretch of the season that made the Seminoles bowl eligible during Coach Bowden's final season, which was a big deal to get him to one more bowl game. You guys played the Gator Bowl. 
uh, in the Gator Bowl. You led the Seminoles to a 33-21 win over West Virginia. You were the game MVP. Um, great way to send Coach Bowden out. What do you remember about that year in general and that bowl game? Well, what I remember the most about that year is the conversation I had with Coach Bowden once I knew I would be the starter. And uh, like you mentioned, Nick, I mean, the situation was we had to win two of the last three regular season games in order to be bowl eligible. You know, you got to win six or more games. And uh, at the time, it was Coach Bowden's last season. It came out that Coach Fisher was going to become the new head coach. And so I went to his office. This was like a Monday of the first week that I was starting. I think we were playing Wake Forest that week. And Coach Bowden, you know, sits across in another chair and he says, look, he says to me, hey, look, don't try to be anybody beside EJ. You're more than good enough. You're more, more than prepared for this moment. I've been doing scout team my, my freshman year and now my redshirt freshman year to this point. And uh, he was like, don't worry about me as the coach. In my last year, you go out there and play football and have fun. And what that did, Nick, it helped me really relax. And my, my shoulders instantly dropped because then I was like, okay, Coach Bowden believes in me. Coach Fisher believes in me. My team now believes in me. And though there was a lot ahead of us as far as winning those games to be bowl eligible, um, as a freshman, I was very proud to be the leader of that. And, um, you know, one of those moments that I'll, I'll always cherish, you know, because Coach Bowden's not with us anymore. Uh, you definitely miss him. Um, but I, I'll never forget that conversation because of all coaches, I mean, one of the best of all time to do it, Bobby B sitting across the table telling me, hey, man, you can, you can do it. And it really meant a lot to me. So let, let's talk a little bit more about Coach Bowden. Clearly a legend. Uh, you played for him when you first got to Florida State. You mentioned Coach Fisher. You got to play for him, you know, toward, towards your, you know, your later years in your career uh, at Florida State. And he has obviously had great success in his own right. Uh, I'm sure you learned a lot from both of them. How fortunate do you feel to have played for two great coaches like that? And tell me a little bit about each. How how were they different? And what did you learn from each of them? Well, the biggest thing I learned from Coach Bowden was that it's okay to be more than a football player, right? And what I mean by that is to be a well-rounded, you know, well-rounded individual, uh, do good in your studies, be a Christian man, you know, go to church, serve God, love God, have a relationship with God. And the cool thing was Coach Bowden would take us to a Baptist church and he would take us to a Catholic church. He would take us to different churches. So we had a different feel for whatever religion we wanted to serve. You know, I think that Coach Bowden just made a point to us as young men uh, to have faith in our life. And I grew up in a, you know, a faith-based household with my parents, uh, but to have that re-implemented by a head coach like Coach Bowden said a lot. Um, you know, and another thing he always taught me, uh, when you throw a goal ball, just give it some air and let the receiver come back to the ball. He used to always say that you don't want to overthrow a goal route. Just give your receiver an opportunity because he either gets a pass interference or he comes up with the catch. Coach Fisher, I learned so much, Nick. And really, I, I give a lot of my credit to my quarterback, you know, tutelage to him. That's the reason I really went to Florida State is because I wanted to be taught by Coach Fisher. Uh, when I was getting recruited, you know, he was a quarterback coach and an offensive coordinator. And I knew, okay, he did it with Jamarcus Russell. He did it with Matt Flynn. He did it with Rohan Davey, guys at LSU. And Damian Craig, who was also my quarterback coach my, my junior and senior year. And I wanted to play for those guys. And I felt like Coach Fisher, beyond the football field, also taught me to be a man. You know, he taught me how to handle pressure. Uh, he taught me how to look pressure in the eye and be prepared for it. And uh, the way he coaches is, is hard. You know, he's hard on his quarterbacks. He expects a lot. And I felt like once I could handle the coaching and practice, when I got in the game, that was easy. You know, throwing touchdowns and leading two-minute drills and third-down situations in front of 85,000 people became easier because of the heat he put on us Monday through Thursday. So uh, those are moments and things I remember from both of those coaches. And I'm so grateful that I played for both of them. So let's get back to bowl games now. 4-0, and 
in bowl games. That's that's pretty impressive. So we <laughs> talked about the Gator Bowl victory over West Virginia, Coach Bowden's last last game. You you then defeated South Carolina the following year in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. You beat Notre Dame in the Champ Sports Bowl the year after that. And then, of course, the your final game, uh, the victory in the Orange Bowl. What do you remember about those four games? And tell our listeners a little bit about the bowl week. Fans turn the TV on for three hours in December, <laughs> watch a bowl game. But bowl yeah. games are so much more than that. The, the You know, these games, as you know, roll out the red carpet. They're so proud to host you in their community. And you 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 get to experience so many unique things that maybe you've never experienced in your life to that point. Some for, for some guys, maybe they'll never experience again. You're certainly not going to do it with a hundred of your closest friends. Right, uh, right, right. Cool. Tell, tell me, tell me what you remember about those bowl games. Well, the biggest thing I remember, Nick, is winning. No, I'm just kidding. I do remember winning, but in all seriousness, um, I think back to the Chick-fil-A bowl against South Carolina. That was a big one for us because we wanted to go out and finish our season by beating an SEC team. They had Stefan Gilmore. Uh, they had uh, uh, Greg Melvin, or they had a DN. I think he play, still playing in the NFL. They had a bunch of good players, DJ Schweringer on their defense. And uh, Christian had gotten hurt, I think, in the first quarter of that game. So I had an opportunity to go out and, and finish it. You know, I don't even think we were winning at the time and uh, was able to help us come back and win that game. Uh, the other one versus Notre Dame, you know, uh, that was that was really special. Again, a national brand in Notre Dame. I, I, I really feel like that was another pillar of us as a Florida State team getting back. And uh, a lot of people don't even know in that game in the third quarter, I got hit on a scramble, hopped up, and I really couldn't walk on my left leg. And uh, come to find out months later, I had actually fractured the non-weight-bearing bone in my calf. So I guess that would be the fibula or the tibula. I'm not a, I'm not a science major, but one of those bones I had broken and uh, finished that game. And again, Coach Fisher, I was on the sideline. I told him, Coach, I can't walk. And he's like, get your back in the game. And that's where those toughness, those, you know, those mental things that I learned. Because uh, I'm glad he told me to get back in the game. I could still go. I mean, if you can still walk and make plays, go out there and be a legend. So um, the other part, as far as just the week of the bowl prep, I'll be honest, man, like the first eight practices at campus are hard. They're like training camp. We're going against our defense. We're beating each other's heads in. And then we have to go home. There's nobody on campus because it's Christmas break. So once you actually get that bus or that flight to wherever the bowl game venue is, it's so much fun. And I don't know how it is now, but when I was in school, Nick, you know, they would give us those Best Buy gift cards or, uh, you know, the Chick-fil-A bowl. They gave us as much Chick-fil-A as we wanted. And when you're an 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old young man, that's a big deal. You know what I mean? So those parts were fun. And then, as you mentioned, just that time with your teammates, you know, getting off campus, going to Jacksonville, going to Orlando, going to uh, Atlanta, going to Miami with your friends, your teammates, your brothers, uh, there's nothing like that. You know, those bus rides, I, I cherish those those jokes I made with teammates and just great memories. You know, one of my best friends, Dustin Hopkins, we talk about the Orange Bowl and all the victories we had when we were in college all the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, I'm glad that bowl games still matter because obviously with the, the way and the landscape that the CFP has given the narrative around college football, if you, if you don't make the CFP, nobody cares, then that's wrong. I feel like bowl games still matter to the community. They matter to the fan base and they damn sure matter to the players. And I just feel like it's the last opportunity for some of these juniors and seniors that then want to go into the NFL or go into the business world. It's your last opportunity to put a stamp on your college career. Uh, so I'm very happy that we still have these bowl games. You're, you're exactly right, EJ. We talk about that all the time. Not, you know, college football is such an even, uneven playing field, right? And, and if, if the 
only option to play in a, in the postseason was to be in the CFP, even when it goes to 12 teams. What would the rest of college football be doing right now? Like your, your Florida State team, it seems like there's as much energy and excitement around that program as there's been in a while. Uh, yeah. They had a really good year, um, took a big step forward. Now they have a great opportunity to play Oklahoma in the Cheez-It Bowl, which is that the same bowl that was the Champ Sports Bowl yep. uh, that you played in, new name. Um, and if they can get a win there, that's going to launch them into next year and then use that as a stepping stone to get to the playoff again eventually. So yeah. tell tell me tell me tell me what you think about that and and also just kind of what your um, you know what you think about the state of the Florida State program today and are you sharing in that excitement that a lot of other people are? Yeah, Nick, the excitement for a bowl game, specifically Florida State this year, is a potential 10th win. I mean, who doesn't want to go into the offseason and say, man, we want double-digit victories. So the next step is an ACC championship game. The next step is beating Wake Forest, NC State, Clemson. Uh, those old Atlantic, we don't have the Atlantic or Coastal anymore in ACC, but those teams that if you don't beat them, you don't make it to the ACC championship game to have that chance to go to the CFP. Um, so I, I think for not just Florida State, for all these teams, Nick, it's very important. Uh, I think I'm out of cut out. I think it's very important uh, that they finish strong. And the, the way I see for Florida State against Oklahoma, um, two national brands, right? I mean, you, you got Brent Venables as a new year or new head coach at Oklahoma. Um, obviously, Coach Mike Novell in his third season at Florida State, seemingly turning it around. QB1 Jordan Travis. Uh, you know, I think Oklahoma is kind of where Florida State was, you know, two years ago in the sense of trying to really you know, okay, we're going to mesh with this coach and we're going to get this group of players because the transfer portal and guys left with Coach Riley. Um, so I think you got two programs that are on the up and up. And then with Oklahoma joining the SEC here in a couple of years, I, I think this is a great potential victory for Florida State to stamp themselves and say, hey, look, you know, like when I was in college, we beat South Carolina, we beat Notre Dame, we beat Northern Illinois. The following year, we beat Auburn for the national championship. I think this is the same way of going up and up for a Florida State team to say they beat Oklahoma. And you got to remember this too. I'll add, they didn't play in a bowl game last year or the year before, right? So I think this is even more added reason to go out there and play well and finish your season strong. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. Uh, last question for you. Uh, college football has changed quite a bit in, in, in recent years. It's very different than when you were there with the transfer portal, uh, kids seemingly being able to just switch schools every year if they want, the, the NIL opportunities. Uh, it seems like, you know, you and I could could sit back. I'm a lot older than you, but when we're both getting a little older, we, you know, <laughs> with age comes wisdom, we could look back and say, why is this kid doing this or that? Yeah. At this point in your life, what advice would you give a young college player if you had an opportunity to talk to him? The best advice I would give the young college player is to get your degree. Um, I think with all the discussion of NIL and transfer portal, the actual education piece gets lost in translation. And look, you know, I'm not by any means, I went a 4.0 student. I had a good GPA. I think I was like a 3.3 or 3.4 when I graduated. But I just feel like as a player that did the NFL, it was a first round pick. So I was very fortunate to make a lot of my money up front, to be honest. And so when I had the opportunity to then transition into something else, I was comfortable enough because I knew I had the background education wise and I was good financially. So I felt like, okay, I can go ahead and transition and do something else instead of trying to scratch and claw to make a roster and doing this and that and doing that. So I just feel like that part is really important for these players as they go through the transfer portal. I don't know how that works academically for these guys, but I think the biggest key is get your degree. Uh, and the other part, enjoy being in college. You know, I think a lot of players are so caught up 
going to the CFP, going to the NFL draft, going free and out. Enjoy being a college student, man. These are these are days and moments, whether you play in a bowl game or not, where you won't have this time back. You become older like us and have kids and have people to really be responsible for. Life's different, you know? And so I, I'm happy where I'm at and I'm glad I was able to enjoy those moments because I feel like now there's so many distractions. There's social media, there's TikTok, there's Twitter and all these different voices and podcasts and blogs and all this stuff instead of just, you know, enjoying the process and keeping the main thing, the main thing. Um, so I, this is actually what I share with a lot of the young guys I do mentor, you know, is just enjoy the moment because it's cliche. And, you know, you just get caught up and you look up five years down the road. You didn't even have fun when you were in college because you were so busy trying to go to the next place instead of enjoying where your feet were. That's, that's great advice. Good stuff. Couldn't agree more, EJ. Yes, sir. Thanks so much for your time. I know, I know you're busy. Really appreciate you joining us. You were a lot of fun to watch as a player. You're you're fun to talk to today. Uh, best of luck to you in your broadcasting career, and hopefully we run into each other uh, somewhere down the road. Sounds good, Nick. Appreciate you having me. Have a good day. We're going to take a short bra- break and be back with our next guest. Stay tuned. The forecast for this tax season? It's going to rain refunds. Lots of refunds. File for less and get more with Tax Act, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is the executive director of the Camellia Bowl, Johnny Williams. Johnny, welcome to the show. Nick, it's good to be with you today. Well, bowl season is almost here. It's an exciting time for all of us. The Camellia Bowl is going to welcome Georgia Southern and Buffalo to Montgomery, Alabama on December 27th. How excited are you for this matchup and for bowl season? hopefully a, a full normal bowl season for all of us to be just, just a, just a couple of weeks away. Oh yeah. It's, it's great to have these two teams back. They've been in our game before Georgia Southern actually was in our game about four years ago. And uh, matter of fact, I, his name forgets me, but they, they won the game on the last kick of the game. He's the kicker at Buffalo. Now the, uh, the pro team. So, uh, and, and then Buffalo on their side, they came in uh, two years ago during COVID and the team came in the day before the game and just played the game. So they didn't get to experience all the great things in Montgomery and that Southern hospitality we're known for. So we've had side visits with both schools, and they're both anxious to get here. And uh, I think it's going to be a great matchup. I mean, with the portal, let me throw this out there. Buffalo's last year's quarterback transferred, and now he's the starting quarterback at Georgia Southern. So you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's <laughs> – so anyway, yeah, that's going to be a compelling storyline right there for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about your background a little bit. You spent three years as uh, the senior associate athletic director at Alabama back in the 2000s. You oversaw marketing promotions. Right. Uh, you were you were the athletic director at Troy for 10 years. Uh-huh. Before that, you were a football coach, both at the high school level, also at your alma mater, the University of North Alabama. Tell me, what's the key to being successful when you work in college sports? And, and how did being a coach and an athletic director prepare you to run a bowl game? Well, first thing, I was uh, thrown into the athletic director's role in the way. I bet I've been ready, but it, it all worked out. I was a uh, uh, defense coordinator at Troy at that time, and uh, they had a couple of ADs in three years and then left, went from defense coordinator to athletic director. And, and the thing I think it prepared me for, and looking back on it, it the communication factor, you know, having – I brought my whole staff together every day or every few days we had meetings. We, we tried to keep everybody on the same page. Everybody had input. You know, everybody knew their role. We all tried to work together. And I know it's the, the nostalgia saving the team approach, but that's basically 
what I brought from football coaching to the administrative side. Because as I interviewed and met and worked with these people, whether it was at Troy's athletic director at University of Alabama, which is at the highest level, you know, you start realizing these people are off in a vacuum on their own a lot of times, and they have tremendous input. They can, they can add the organizational structure. You know, especially when I was at Troy, we went from Division Two to, to FBS and joined the Sun Belt in a matter of a 10-year span. I was the athletic director. Tremendous amount of change. And, I, you know, when I uh, became the athletic director at Troy, I budgeted you know, two and a half, three million dollars. Uh, that's close to thirty million dollars. I'm very proud of that. The growth that program's had. They just had a under, well, ten win season. They're going to a tremendous bowl. I mean, they've had a lot of success there. And then the University of Alabama speaks for itself. You know, I've had opportunity to be help guide the uh, the mission of a, of a large uh, uh, aircraft carrier. Look, I guess you word it that way. <laughs> that program with their success and history, and so. Uh, and I tell people quite often, I say, well, you know what? You can have as much fun with $2 million as you can, $122 million. <laughs> but the sport, but the coaching factor, though, really played a lot, uh, I think, in my success, being able to communicate with people and keep them, keep them on task and keep the whole organization moving forward for successful, you know, uh, into a uh, you know, great season, if that's the case. Now, the Camellia Bowl is coming up on being 10 years old very soon. What have you learned over the last decade in doing this job? And and what are some of your goals for the game as it continues to grow? Well, as I look, that's a good question because what I've learned about it, these kids are just excited about coming to Montgomery, Alabama, as I'm sure the kids are going to be excited to go to Pasadena and play in the Rose Bowl. Right, what we try to do, we may not play in front of 100,000 people on, on game day. It may be 15 or 20, 25,000. But the experience we try to provide for them here at Montgomery the hospitality, the, you know, the great friendship and just, you know, connecting with our, our guests and, you know, try to, we try to feed them as good as anybody can feed them. As you can tell, I, I, I love that part of the job, <laughs> but you know, it's all about being a, a communicate with them, make them feel comfortable and have access to us. And this is our ninth year. Next year would be our 10th year. It's hard to fathom. We've been able, it has some great games. I think the first six games were determined by a total of 17 points, the first six ball games. And this bowl actually fit a niche that was much needed for the for the group of five, especially the smaller conferences in the group of five. Because several years they had teams win eight, nine, ten teams and didn't get a chance to go to a bowl. So when the bowl regulations changed, it, it turned it over to the, in the hands of the conferences to decide on if they want to participate. It opened up opportunities for a bowl like the Camega Bowl, or and there's several like this around. You know, whether it's Myrtle Beach Bowl, whether it's Potato Bowl. You know, they feel a need. There's tremendous quality football played at this level. And it's a good chance for these, like I said, the group of five to pair these people up, these teams. And, you know, just like Troy, we played in Cure Bowl here. They've got, like, what, 11 wins playing against Texas San Antonio with 10. Great competition. could be a great game for TV. But, hey, it means as much to those kids as it does the guys that are going to wind up out in L.A. playing for the national championship. I can assure you that. There's no, no doubt about that, Johnny. And, you know, you mentioned the hospitality, you know, every bowl game is unique, but one thing they have in common is they're, they're, they're all so proud uh, to be hosting the teams that they do every year. They're so proud of their community and they all do an unbelievable job of showcasing, showcasing the best that their community has to offer to, to all those visitors that come to town. What do you have planned for the teams during their time in Montgomery? Well, our tagline is history happens here. Montgomery, Alabama is, was in the forefront of a lot of history in our country whether it's the beginning of the Civil War, whether this was the capital of the Confederacy, to the birthplace of the Civil Rights Movement, Miss Rosa Parks, 
who became the uh, uh, rest of 50, I think 54 years ago this past December the 1st. Uh, we take the players, to, both teams go to the Rosecross Museum. Uh, we have one of the local barbecue establishments to close the restaurant and feed the team. We call it Alabama football, I mean, excuse me, Alabama barbecue experience called Dreamland. But a lot of people may have heard of the Dreamland. So we, and it's all the ribs and foods that you can eat. You know what I'm saying? And we, and at, let me share what we do at that event. We we pass out our souvenir football. It's got the date of the game, the logos, the date and place. And we give each player a Sharpie pen. And during, and we tell them, when you go and you have your meal to this football, you go around and get your friends and your buddies to sign their, kind of like the old days back getting your annual sign. Because a lot of them, this is the last time they'll ever be together and play the game. So we try to make it about the team. Then we have uh, what we call the Alabama Football Legends, Legends Award. We started this award the year we started the bowl game. Football is so important to our state. I felt like first there was a need for this that we need to honor annually someone who's from, played, or coached in the state of Alabama. And over the last nine years, we've honored some leg uh, legacy people. Bobby Bowden, who's from Alabama. Pat Dye. Gene Stallings. This year, our recipient is Chan Gailey, former head coach of the Buffalo Bills, Dallas Cowboys. Well, believe it or not, he was head coach at Troy State University in 1984 and won a national championship, which launched him in with, to go to the Denver Broncos the next year, which gave me an opportunity to go to Troy. I got my job because Chan left. So the players will get a chance to meet a legend of the game. And we, and our community uh, has fallen into that. Like that luncheon that day, Nick, we'll have over 700 people at that luncheon. And it means a lot to these players see these local people getting excited about it at a game, you know, coming to their game and glad they're in town. And our city and our uh, chamber and our county commissioner are all involved. Uh, Montgomery had a legacy of football here that dates way back, over 63 years. They hosted the Blue Bray game for all those years. But the very beginning of football bowls, there was three bowl games. And if you didn't go to one of the bowl, those three, you went to the Blue Bray game. It was nationally televised, usually on Christmas Day. So that we had about a 10-year span. We didn't have a vote, but the community understands the uh, what that can mean to your community and the notoriety you can get, gain around the country. Because I'm just the last two mayors, I've all told us, you know, anytime I travel around the country, when I tell people I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, they say, hey, I remember watching the old Blue Bird game from Montgomery. So we hope that's what our role is to make. Hey, we, we watched a great game for the Camellia Bowl. And the Camellia Bowl, the reason it has the camellia, but the camellia is the state flower of the state of Alabama. So share that with our guests. And you mentioned the community. The you know that's another thing uh, most bowl games have in common. You know the the communities yeah. are so proud to host them. Tell tell us how important uh, the camellia bowl is to the community of Montgomery and how the community embraces the game. Oh, I'll I'll tell you how they moved their Christmas parade. It had been on the first day of December for like ninety years to to the Friday night before our bowl game the last nine years to have the have both bands play the Christmas parade. <laughs> no, we hey, we have all the schools involved. Uh, it's uh, it, the football is really big in the state of Alabama. If you don't look at the data, I mean, we have some, we've had some great numbers as far as in our state as far as uh, ratings on the game, but people, uh, they talk football here every day of the year. I mean, that's hard for some people to believe on sports radio. Uh, and just like, Myself personally, we launched the game. The local TV station said, Hey, for seven weeks prior to the game, we want you to come on every Tuesday. We want to promote the chameleon bowl at no cost. They just want to be involved. We want to be a part of this. We think it's great for our community. We miss the old blue gray game. Football has meant so much to our community. We're just thankful it's back. So, uh, anyway, that's uh, that's it's good to work at a place like that. 
There's no doubt about it. Well, Johnny, thanks so much for joining us. This is a very, very busy time of year for you. Your, your game's kicking off on, on December 27th. Uh, this is the, the busiest time of the year, but it's the, the greatest time of the year as far as I'm concerned. So really appreciate you taking time out of your, out of your day uh, to join us and good luck with your game. And Nate, we appreciate all you do for us too. It's great that you pulled us all together and, and able us to share a lot of great, wonderful ideas and, and make us all stronger as a group. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Stay with us. Bowl season is finally here. And with Bowl Season Radio, you'll be able to keep up with all the action. Bowl Season is teaming up with First Team Ventures to provide live national radio play-by-play coverage for 18 college bowl games this season. Bowl Season Radio will give college fans the opportunity to stay dialed in to college football's postseason, whether they are driving cross-country or staying close to home. Celebrate college football and listen to Bowl Season Radio on select stations, satellite radio, or off the game day live homepage at bowlseason.com. Welcome back to the show. Our final guest is the co-founder and managing director of Eventelect, Pat Ryan. Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Pat, you and I both know college football is, is so unique. The passion of the fans especially those who are attending the games live on game day, I think is unmatched in sports. We saw some unbelievable game day environments this year, but the trend across uh, some live sporting events, not all, but, but, but a lot of them these days, live attendance seems to be declining. There are so many options for fans nowadays to watch games on their TV, their phones. It's, it's, it seems easier and cheaper for people to stay at home and watch the games on their couch. Um, you're an expert on this subject. How big of a problem is this issue of declining attendance and, and why is this happening? I think it's really about a shift in demand. And so I do think that for like lower demand events in worse seats, you know, the the at-home experience certainly beats that. But in terms of the good games and the good seats, you can't beat that in any form or fashion. It's very Instagrammable uh, and people like being there for the super, super special moments. And so it's just a matter of how you manage kind of the low demand games via doing promotional efforts and then making sure you're kind of maximizing uh, pricing with with the good games. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, so at Event, Eventelect, you, your team has found a way to complement a bowl game's ticket sales strategy that also services the fans in a better way. How do you do that? Well, I think you've got to look at the foundation of any any bowl game. And uh, people take for granted oftentimes how important the bowls are to their local communities. You know, oftentimes they're tied to charitable efforts, nonprofit effort, nonprofit efforts, uh, and then also giving like local business owners a chance to, you know, entertain their clients and give them a, a special experience. So, you know, you've got to look from the standpoint of like, how does the bowl activate in the local community and get like small business owners who are excited to be a part of it, regardless of the matchup, right? And we've seen so many bowls do a really good job. And obviously, like you see the the parades for some of the bowls and like the the special, uh, sometimes there have been basketball tournaments around some of the games, just kind of making it more of, a, of an event than a game. So I think that that's one kind of foundational effort. And then from there, once the team kind of, once the bowl has its sort of set plan for the local community, we then help them sort of kind of manage the the risk and then the upside around who those opponents end up being. Um, obviously, 
if a, if a school is within six six hours driving, demand tends to be very strong. Likewise, if a program is kind of making a bowl for the first time in a couple of years, demand tends to be strong. But then likewise, you've got maybe the bowl is a step down for that particular program. And so you've got to manage those expectations. So it's kind of building on the foundation of the of the local efforts and then kind of managing the, the upside and downside of the of the teams that get allocated to our partner bowls. How do you use data analytics to assist this effort? Well, you know, you've always got to look at the standpoint of historically um, kind of what's the bandwidth, right? Like, you know, past data doesn't always predict the future, but you want to have some on the low end and on the high end. And we obviously have, uh, thankfully, partnerships with a lot of NFL teams who are familiar with a lot of these buildings. Um, and we've built pricing models based on the quality of seat. Uh, and that gets layered on top of a pricing model based on uh, quality of opponent. And then we just manage the inventory based on pace of sales. And so we build a budget uh, kind of hand in hand with our partner uh, in terms of like the expectations of when the tickets will sell and what they should sell for. And if we fall you know, behind the expected pace, then we might need to adjust downward. Uh, and if we get ahead of the pace, we might need to adjust you know, upwards. And that's kind of like a section by section, zone by zone, zone decision. You know, there's a lot of times we see bowl games where, you know, premium seats are really hot, but the the cheaper seats are not. And then we've seen bowl games where vice versa, where like the super premium seats are selling below face value, but the upper deck seats are selling for a premium of above face value. So kind of just keeping your eye on those different metrics within the the, the stadium configurations itself. That's, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, I can actually picture, I, I don't even know if I can remember which, which event it was, but being at games where you see the, these odd patterns of fans in the stands and you see certain sections inexplicably empty while a seemingly lesser section is full. And it really, really makes no sense. I, I'm sure you have solutions for that. So well, let me ask you, who are some of the teams uh, or bowls you have worked with in the past? And do you have any specific success stories you'd like to share? Well, I think I think working with Florida Citrus Sports and, and their properties and understanding that um, they generally have uh, a good base from being in Orlando and, and having been done a good job of being a good steward to the community. So they've got kind of a, a built in base of people who always want to be a part of their events. And then on top of it, Orlando tends to be a desirable travel location this time of year. And so kind of factoring in the, that like if a team ends up in an Orlando based bowl that, you know, the, the demand really could be there, but then you've got to look at things like, well, what are the hotels doing and, and what are the airlines doing and making sure that it's like, well, if the pricing's out of whack there, we could see some demand drop off. But then likewise, if there's a team that's within driving distance, a lot of that goes right out the window. Um, and they've got just such a great staff. that's so familiar with their property and the kind of the ebbs and flows of the conferences um, that we really just try to <clears throat> kind of give them outside perspective on what we've seen with other properties in terms of the ups and downs, and then kind of layer that into to their kind of pricing strategy. Um, and I think one thing that we've adopted really is being being very focused on, you know, being ready for the team announcements, right? Like a lot of times if you have inventory you know, priced too cheaply, just sitting online, you'll get a lot of brokers speculating um, because, you know, the bowl was there's a week where it's like, oh, you know, Notre Dame slated for this bowl. 
you're going to see a lot of, you know, arbitrage uh, from, from, from brokers. And then all of a sudden, well, it ends up not being Notre Dame, but then the brokers bought a bunch of inventory and so then they start liquidating it. So in terms of when you go on sale with what sections is really important to making sure that you kind of control the expectations and sort of pricing elements. Well, this is certainly an exciting time of year, Pat. It's exciting for the fans to watch the games. It's I can imagine it's going to be exciting for you to see the fruits of your labor and the bulls that you work with and, and see how the attendance pans out for that, th those games. Uh, really appreciate your time, Pat. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. I uh, really hope we get to see each other uh, on the road at, during bowl season this year. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening to this week's bowl season stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome another lineup of great guests. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and bowl season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening.